Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. History and myth often clash creating confusion and muddying the truth. Now, my author today explores the events behind the founding of Singapore, revealing that William Farquhar, and not Thomas Stamford Raffles, was responsible for the city's development. So, Nadia Wright, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. Who was William Farquhar? Broad opening question, really. (laughs) It is. Well, briefly, William Farquhar was an officer in the East India Company, who was an administrator in Malacca, and he then suggested establishing a British site on Singapore Island, and he indeed was responsible for the development of that post into a very successful commercial port. Well, let's go back into some of the background. He was in Malacca and such like, but some of these colonies and uh, cities that were established were on very tenuous ground... Uh, you could say politically and geographically as well. You're quite right, and that applies to Malacca in particular because it held a a dominating post in the Malacca Straits. Therefore, the Portuguese grabbed it in the 17th century and then the Dutch took it from them. And then because of treaties signed in Europe, British troops occupied Malacca for the duration of a war between France and Holland. And the idea was they'd hand it back afterwards. Now, during that period, it was William Farker who administered Malacca, and he turned round its economy, he boosted trade, and he recommended that Britain retained Malacca. He didn't want it ret- returned to the Dutch because then they would, they would impose their tolls on the Malacca Straits. Well, just interrupting you there, the the significance of the Malacca Straits? Very important because they were part of the main sea route for the English East India Company transporting its opium through to China and, of course, collecting tea from China and taking it back to the UK. It was a vital sea passage. Vital sea passage, a trade route. Mm. They were drug runners, basically, but (laughs) a very important uh, industry and trade. Mm. And that explains, in some ways, still the significance of Singapore today, not the drug running, but the trade, uh, pivotal on, on the trade route. But then we have Thomas Stamford Raffles. How does he compare at this time where Farquhar's developed... Uh, Malacca, but who's Raffles? Raffles. Well, Raffles started off as a, a very junior clerk in the East India Company in London, and he was promoted to a senior post in Penang, and his patron, Lord Minto, the Governor-General of, of India, appointed him as the Lieutenant Governor of Java when the British occupied it at the and he ran Java for a while. But he was sacked for being an incompetent administrator, but no-one will tell you that. And he went back to England, and society there lionised him. He wrote a book called The History of Java. He really was very fawning towards the royal family, Princess Charlotte and her husband, Prince Leopold. And he eventually got himself appointed in charge of an expedition which was to look 
look for a new British post beyond Malacca. And that's how he actually got to Singapore. He, he signed a very dubious treaty with the local sultans and quite illegally installed a puppet sultan and then said to the East India Company, well, this sultan hasn't signed any treaties with the Dutch, therefore my treaty with him stands. But, of course, the sultan was quite illegal. Anyway, Raffles did raise the British flag. But, as you can imagine, the Dutch were absolutely furious and they threatened to invade the island and take it back. And Farker was urged to leave. And he was told that no way was it worth shedding British blood or tarnishing British honour just, just for the sake of Singapore. But he said no, he was staying. But here's the interesting thing. I mean, Singapore wasn't the first choice. No, it wasn't. Definitely not. Um, Raffles himself preferred Rio, which is a little island to the right of Singapore and he told the East India Company that Rio was right at the base of the Malay Peninsula but that of course is where Singapore was and he also preferred the islands of Bangka and Billiton, Point Romania in fact he didn't really mention Singapore it, it was Farker who suggested Singapore and when Raffles landed he realised that yes it was an ideal position it had an excellent harbour, strategically placed, and so he thought this is the place for a colony. But what's interesting is then that uh, Raffles has uh, sort of seniority, so to speak, yes. over Farquhar. Correct. And um, then Farquhar goes about uh, establishing the colony because Raffles raises the flag and then nicks off. That's right. <clears throat> Raffles wasn't even meant to have gone down to Singapore, which annoyed the British company. He was meant to have settled a dynastic dispute in the Sultanate of Aceh. So he had to nip back to Aceh and fix this up before they realised that he'd disobeyed orders. He was very quick to blame other people for disobeying orders. It was different when he did it himself. And in the interim, I mean, he's, he goes away for mm. three months the first time, mm. but here we have Farquhar quickly organised the felling of jungle and clearing of land. Over 209,000 square metres of land on the plain between Singapore Hill and the sea were cleared and levelled for the cantonment. A further 268,000 square metres on Singapore Hill were cleared, while south of the river some 42,000 square metres of mangroves were cut down and the land prepared for the Chinese kampong. Farquhar oversaw the construction of the commissariat, a large god, god, what? Go, oh, go down. It's a word. Go down. Go down. Right. I hadn't come across that word before. Mm. A reservoir and a 274-metre-long aqueduct to supply water to ships and residents, a bridge, roads, wells, a market and other buildings. Initially, buildings were built of timber with atap or palm frond thatch, roofs and kajang, matting walls. But after Farquhar provided... Camp Camache Pile with money and land to build brick kilns, more substantial buildings could be erected. This is phenomenal. And this is all going on in about three months. Yes. No. Extraordinary record. Mm. Raffles, uh, Farker was very competent. He, he was an engineer. And being an engineer, he was very methodical and precise and perhaps a bit boring. But he, he also was a man with vision. And he really got things going, perhaps perhaps under the premise that possession is 99% of the law. So if we've got a colony and it's all established, it might be a wee bit harder for the British government to later give it up. And then uh, Raffles returns 
mm. and then disappears for <clears throat> over three years. Yeah, just over three and a half years. And during that period, it was Farker who did all the work. He wrote to the local sultans, and his letters were known for being very diplomatic. They were, of course, written in Jawi, which is an Arabic script. Oh, he didn't write it. He would have had a secretary to write these beautifully inscribed letters. And by 1822, Farker had sort of a range was responsible for about two million pounds sterling worth of imports and exports going into Singapore, which was really quite incredible. And all the time, Raffles was over and being called in, and because he was Farker's superior, he really didn't want Farker doing anything on his own, which was very difficult. So even in an emergency, Farker was meant to write to Raffles and being Coolin wait for Raffles' reply and then act, which took about nine months. Because there were there was need, and there are incidences, of Farquhar sort of uh, using his own money to yes. uh, take care of a situation. In terms of establishing a colony, that sort of independence of thinking and approach would have been needed. It was. And Farquhar had authority to ov- obviously organise all local matters, but yes, about the writers or clerks is, is interesting because although Singapore had a town of about 5,000 people, Farquhar had only two secretaries. Um, it was a, basically a military st- establishment, so there was no civil service. And Raffles said, no, no, you don't need any more secretaries. Absolutely ridiculous. But at the same time, he was demanding reports in quadruplicate and triplicate and just overwhelming poor Farquhar with work. Now, if Farquhar was so successful, how do you explain the falling out? Because basically, uh, Raffles sacks Farquhar eventually, but there's a long prelude to all of that. Mm. We sort of need to condense it for the show. There was a falling out. What happened? Well, firstly, in order to build Singapore as a commercial port... Farker decided he would let the merchants build their warehouses on the right north bank of the Singapore River, which was very good for building. Raffles had set aside that land for government purposes. So that's step one. Raffles was going to retire to England. He was a very sick man, and he wanted to downplay Farker. He wanted to get rid of him. His excuse was that Farker had disobeyed him by building those warehouses on the river, and therefore Raffles would have to demolish them, and he emphasised this, at great cost to the government. And all this showed that Farquhar was disobedient and incompetent. So that was the main reason that Raffles dismissed Farquhar, but by the way, he had no authority to do so. He never appointed Farquhar in the first place. It was the Governor-General of India who did and only he could have dismissed him. And then Raffles went and dismissed Farker as the commandant of the forces. Again, absolutely no reason to do so, and poor Farker was horribly humiliated. He had done nothing wrong, and yet he was being dismissed from both his posts. This speaks to the sort of egos, personalities. How much can you say about these characters as an historian... Uh, interpreting the sort of subjective element of the nature of these personalities? Well, 
that, that's a very interesting question. And you can only look at what Raffles did when you look at his personality. He used to exaggerate everything. Um, he would take credit for everything all the way along the line. He was determined to retire to Britain and be lionised, and he expected a huge pension. And he was determined to do anything to get that pension and get recognition. Now, we're going to have to bring the discussion to a close, unfortunately. But one more quick question then. The fallout, the reputation. Did Raffles get his pension? What happened to Farquhar? Raffles did not get his pension. In fact, the East India Company was so horrified at the way he frankly cooked the books that they sent him a bill for £22,000, which bankrupted the poor man, and he died of a sort of... It was a blood disorder. He had a, not quite an aneurysm to the brain, but something like that. And he died on the eve of his 45th birthday, penniless, bankrupt, friendless. And Farquhar? Farquhar went back to Scotland, and although he had married in Malacca, he married a, a teenage girl, had another five children... Having had five with the local... Having had five from the woman in Malacca. And he remained on the East India Company military list, was promoted to Major General, and he finally died in 1837. But his reputation amongst the traders, Chinese traders, and such like he was given gifts, etc., because he treated them so well... Raffles was not given any gifts. (laughs) (laughs) Nadia, I'm going to have to draw the discussion to a close, but just be careful, Jan. If you go to uh, Singapore, maybe you shouldn't book into the Raffles Hotel. It should be, or retitled the Farquhar Hotel. Well, yes. Now, I'm talking about travelling too, but I'm not talking about travelling in Singapore. I'm talking about travelling through Europe. And if ever you've been there, you would have been to some medieval towns. And if you haven't, I'm sure you can imagine a medieval town, the castle, the church, the main square and the wall all around. Kate Murdoch has written Stone Circle, and it's set in such a place. Good morning, Kate. Morning, Jan. Thanks for having me. Ah, oh, delighted now, because you, you've taken me travelling in your <laughs> book. Where and when have you got me in your Stone Circle? Pesaro, which is a small town on the Adriatic coast, in 1585. Okay. So the research of the setting is... I can feel it, I can see it, but it's really also the inhabitants, those people who live there... And there's different classes. The class system was very entrenched. It was very hard to have any mobility at that time. So I thought it would be interesting to explore what would happen if by having an ability as such, such as a psychic power, whether that would enable some mobility. And it it does in the story. That's right. Uh, Usually there's the, the, the lords and the ladies of the town, the merchants and then the peasants. That's right. So, arranged marriages, of course. Yes, well, you know, romance was something that was pretty much irrelevant in those <laughs> days. It was the compatibility of the two families, whether they, uh, whether it was economically going to be a match, obviously whether they were at the same social level. Uh, yeah, those were the two main concerns. And you often think about this in nobility, but I like that uh, there was a pig farmer who had two wells and knew he had to marry a woman with strong arms to carry the water. <laughs> so to be chosen to have strong arms, that was quite, quite something. So you talk about a woman with abilities, and Julia, what's her special ability? 
Well, she is able, has the ability of sight, so psychic powers once again. And it's her father, Savinus. Yes. He's a seer in the town, but before we talk about his job as a seer, he's also looking out for a husband. He's also looking out for an apprentice. How does he go about choosing two apprentices? Well, he sets up a competition in the town and there are two stages to it. In the first stage, they have to... Uh, he asks him a few questions and, you know, depending on their answers, he kind of narrows it down to maybe, I think it was six boys mm. that he narrowed it down to. Then they had to come back and be blindfolded and choose, uh, like there were objects under cups on the mm. table and they have to then uh, say what is under each cup. Two boys are chosen to be, or two young men, I should say, Antonius and Nicola. But they're chalk and cheese. They're, they're different in status, they're different in ability, and they're certainly different in empathy. In the very start, in the prologue of the book, it's a year after they meet, and we're going to hear a little bit of um, from page nine. Gazing into the distance, Antonius did not see the paddle as it swung in an arc towards his head, striking him on the back. The impact winded him, and for a brief instant, the sharp pain emptied his mind before he tumbled over the side. Dragged down by his clothing, he flailed and gasped. Looking up, he saw Nicola sitting motionless in the boat, studying him with a blank face. The water in Antonius's ears blocked out most noise, but he could hear Savinus yelling at Nicola from the other boat, Sucking in a final breath, he hugged his knees and dropped into the milky, murky depths. There was a splash as the old man jumped overboard to try to save him. Mm, so we know right at the very beginning that there's no love lost between Nicola and Antonius. Now, Savinos, actually the father, wants these boys to be apprentices and learn about the seer craft. Mm. How was the seer used in medieval times? Well, there were different ways that uh, a seer could be useful. One was to uh, predict you know, th- what would happen with crops. Well, this mm. is how I wrote it in the story, or how I imagined it. Um, and also uh, personal issues like you know, romance, like whether someone, <laughs> to find out if someone was interested or, or even to predict the right date for a wedding mm. or a you know, number of things. So, so uh, Savignos was used like this, and especially he, he was a merchant class, mm. but he, he spoke directly to the Lord mm. because the Lord would, wanted his skills as yes. a seer. So it, that opened up an introduction. You also talked about uh, where he got his knowledge and it's um, he was he, there was a, a scroll originating from the Great Library of Alexandra written by Herms Trismegistus. Yes. No, no, you can't make up a name like <laughs> no. that. No. <laughs> so that must be true. It is, yes. Yeah, that fascinated me. Um, him as a, a figure who, you know, came up with all these concepts of hermetic alchemy, but they were sort of buried for quite some time. And it was only during the Renaissance that there was this renewed interest in what that was all about and people started to practice a little bit more. And the way I imagined the story, whether this is true or not, I imagine it as being a very normal part of the society, something that people from all classes would utilise for different reasons. 
and in fact not not a big deal not not weird or the only people that saw it as a bit uh threatening were the church mm. so i've also explored that in the story oh yes but we we're not going to we're just going to go a little <laughs> bit more on this seer side mm-hmm. because really you know he was out he was teaching the, his two apprentices, apprentices which flowers to pick and herbs That's to right. make and and how to distill so there's that aspect Yes, also. it's quite earthy. Yeah. So the stone circle, how does that come in? Well, that's where they do one of their main rituals. So uh, by the full moon, they form a circle of stones and that's where um, when Antonius uh, has his initiation ceremony or ritual, that is where that happens. So it's quite significant in the story. Mm, it certainly is. Um, Savinius, the father, has told his daughter Julia, in a man... What we have is a talent. In a woman, it is witchcraft or sorcery. You can use your abilities secretly to help your children and your husband. That is all. Mm. But as you were saying, there's also awareness now for male seers from the church. Yes, that's right. And so there's a particular figure, Thomas Ignacio, who takes it upon himself to uh, investigate what sort of practices are being uh, done and he, he takes objection to some of the practices and not others. For instance, shape-shifting is seen as being more inappropriate and more work of the devil. Mm. So, yes, he um, he clamps down. <laughs> I think this is kind of a little bit like the start of the Inquisition, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> you feel that, that bad that feeling. Creeping In fact, unease. You, 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 uh, There's another quote from Kate Murdoch's book. Dangers of magicians and seers, black magic, was to be as strenuously avoided as contact with the plague. Oh, stay away, stay away. So Nicola is the son of the Lord. Why did he want to learn all of this, all of these seer crafts? I think he wants, he basically wants to be approved of by his family. He's spent his life sort of feeling a bit like the underdog and he's got this brother who's so kind and sweet and but at the same time charming and he he's the golden boy so Nicola just feels like he's irrelevant and I think he feels that if he um, becomes an apprentice that he will be regarded more highly and appreciated by his family. So his brother much nicer his brother um, had a gentle disposition and a love of beauty in all its forms he was gifted with immense personal charm and made friends he was the good son and Nicola was the immoral, immoral one, and he played his part with skill. <laughs> he was a nasty piece of work. But, you know, um, Antonius also had a brother that Nicola caused to have problems. Tell, me, tell us about Piero. Yeah, so uh, Piero is, as they would have probably called it at the time, simple-minded. He, uh, he experiences a lot of uh, abuse from the local boys in the town and... He's very much loved by his family and by Antonius. Antonius uh, is very protective of him and tries to kind of limit the abuse that happens as much as he possibly can. Mm. And their bond is very special. So Nicola knows that this is the the way that he can really get at him and really cause a lot of harm. Because you've given us an asylum. You, you, if, if it's not just the threat of um, bad priests coming, well, we have one there who's quite sadistic in, a, in an asylum. And uh, I, I, this is where Piero was placed, along with a god denier. <laughs> yes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh. So 
how does Nicola use his power as a as a lord's son to win Julia and get rid of Antonius? How can the good win over from the immoral? <laughs> well, you just have to read it to find out. That's right. The book had had a conclusion, but um, it left me wondering if there was more in store for these threesome. Well, it's funny you should ask that because I did start a sequel quite some time ago, but it was right after I'd written it and I'd been two years living with these characters and I, I needed to go into a different world at that point. But I'm certainly I'm keeping it open that I could potentially go back to it once I've finished my current book. Okay, um, Kate Murdoch also explained to me about the publisher of this book, uh, Fireship Press. Yes. An, an unusual one I hadn't come across before, but it, it, you found it online because it dealt just with the type of book you wrote. Yes, they do a number of different uh, genres, all historical fiction, but within that there's different um, categories and there was historical fantasy. So this is extremely unusual to find an imprint that specialises in that. So to me it was a, a green light that we should approach them. And did they take um, manuscripts, you know, sort of all types of manuscripts? Did they give you any feedback on the manuscript? Well, it was all through my agent, so I didn't yeah. really hear their exact thoughts on it, but they, they wanted it. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, no, they've been, they've been good to deal with. Well, here's an interesting segue, talking about publishers. Um, Entrepot, uh, Nadia's publisher... And it's a lovely word, and you've used it several times in your book, but it's a Malaysian-based publishing yes, house. Yes, it is. It's a fairly young publishing house established by um, Marcus Langdon, who is himself a historian in Penang, and um, Keith Hawkin, who's a retired banker. But they're specialising. They're specialising in Penang history, Penang travel, and anything to do with Penang, really. And I knew Marcus, and um, that's how they came to publish my book. Naturally, no publisher in Singapore would touch it because mm. it's, <laughs> it's not favourable to raffles. <laughs> so, controversy then? What would have happened if, you know? I don't know. <laughs> I, I just got reject, rejection slips. Really? Mm. Or From, not interested. So, preserve the myth. Uh, yes, don't worry costs. about the truth, you know. Yeah. When, what's the, the old line? If there's a difference between the, the truth and the myth, print the myth uh, sort of thing. Much more saleable. But um, I, what I think is interesting for listeners out there is how both our authors today have gone out of the mainstream, look specifically for publishers who do that their type of book. Mm. Because now with the digital age, you can mm. target your audience more effectively and such like. But I'd say Entrepop were trying to uh, develop an awareness of the the region, Asian mm. in focus and such very, like. Very much so. Yeah. Yes. So there's a, a market for that. Well, well that's it. That's, that's it. basic. <laughs> wow. We went to right back in the Singapore, swing of things. We went to Italy and, you know, we went covered centuries too. And, indeed. And, and you've come back, back from holiday and, and are now we're, we're back into the swing of things. We Jer. are. We are. So thank you all for listening. And, of course, I'm thanking Kate, Kate Murdoch for her book Stone Circle, published by Fireship Press. And uh, I'd like to thank Nadia Wright for coming in today for her book William Farquhar and Singapore. And as I said, Entrepot Press.